The following is dated February 17, 1989. It's a letter from Mr. Wolf's wife sent to the Manatee County Sheriff's Office. Attention, Records Department. For 10 years, I have not received an investigation report on my husband, Harry E. Wolf. His death occurred in April of 1977. Please send the report to me, his wife. His case number is 252414. This preys on my mind, makes me upset, and wondering how far the investigation was followed, and if the case has been dropped. Please help me and send the report. The response she got was essentially a denial of her request, which noted, quote, I assure you, all measures were taken to locate and identify the perpetrator. Also, for your benefit, I will assure you that no unsolved murder is ever dropped. The Manatee County Sheriff's Office is as concerned today as we were in 1977. The police captain then gave her a phone number and an invitation to set up a phone call with him to review the case file. I'd like to hear a little bit about your grandfather. Can you tell me what he was like and, you know, his hobby, anything, anything that'll sort of flesh him out for, for the listener as a person? So he was a large man um, with dark hair. He loved fishing, which is why he was there. He was meeting a buddy to do some fishing. Um, he and my grandma lived in Cincinnati, but we lived down here in Florida, and they would, you know, do the whole snowbird thing with their camper. Um, and they would drive with their RV down and park the RV at our house and. Uh, my grandma was there in the RV while he took the truck and went down to Sarasota to a friend's house to, you know, go play with him and do whatever it is they were going to do. Okay. So she didn't go with him on these trips? It was just him no. when he... Okay. That... Yeah, she stayed to visit with her daughter, my mother. I see. So that was another one of these trips. They, you weren't live, they weren't living regularly in Florida at this time yet? Correct. Okay, that didn't really shine through in the report. I wasn't aware. I wasn't sure if... So that makes a little bit more sense. So they would travel down like snowbirds. And I, and living in Florida, I get that because we have them all around us. So they'd travel down in the RV, and then he'd take the truck, and he'd go off and do his fishing or whatever with his buddies, and she'd stay and visit and um, with family, and then he would come back. So do you know who specifically he was visiting on that trip? I do not remember. I was only seven Hmm. Um, do you know what what family um, lived in that area? It was one of his friends, and I don't remember if it was a golfing trip or a fishing trip, but I'm going to assume that it was probably fishing. It, he was an avid fisherman. Okay. And in the back of the truck, it had all kinds of fishing gear and tackle and... And golf stuff, yeah, I saw that. There was a lot of a lot of stuff in there, so he could have been doing any of those things. And the newspaper clippings, I went to newspapers.com, and I first wanted to find as many clippings as I could find. Usually they're not 100% accurate, but you can get a feel for what they were reporting anyway. And they said he was revisiting a cousin, but in the report, there is nobody, that no witness statement of who he, sp- who he stayed with. Did you ever... Um, so when you got the police report, you never read any statement from any witness that he had visited on that trip? So I, I don't recall who it was. I used to know who it was. Um, and I know that my when he didn't show up at home when he was supposed to, they had called this said person and to find out if he had left 
and I and I cannot remember if it he had left and was on his way home or if he never even made it there. Because that's the one thing that stood out to me is even in the even in the later years in the notes from the people that were like in the cold case team reinvestigating it, they were at the, they jot down their questions and they didn't even know who the, they didn't even know who it was that they didn't have any notes at all at who he was visiting. So your mom might have known, but I don't know that the police had a, a clear sense of of who he was visiting. Um, and that seems to be a point of confusion because there's no one in here. The only witness statements that are in the report that I have are witness statements from people that they spoke to in the area that may have seen his truck. There's no no one else. Um, you said you that your grandmother knew who it was that he was visiting. Do you recall if that person was questioned or spoken to by police? I do not know that. They, they wouldn't really, at that time, they didn't want to share anything with me at all. Um, but I remember... Um, my mom, my mom and grandma calling because my grandma couldn't find him. So I, I do know that they were called and then they called the police. Um, and in the notes that my grandma had, she had all of this stuff as to who they, you know, where he was going and who they called. And So he was retired basically, but he was um, making money off these rental properties. Is that what basically he was doing? Yes, he was retired. He had investments. He had a lot of stocks, a lot of bonds. I think um, back in those days, he would have been considered wealthy. Okay. From from what I remember, you know, I remember great things about him. But from my mom, she she says he was kind of like a slumlord type of guy. They had a lot of investment and rental property, and I guess he didn't take the best care of everything. Hmm. You asked me about a diary. He did not have a diary, but he had a ledger. Um, I don't have the ledger. So and I'm guessing this was his rental property stuff. I see. Okay. And that sort of explains those deeds and the warranty deeds and stuff, the documentation that was in the truck that sort of seemed out of place until you know that he had properties. That makes sense now. The one, there was one incident that I wanted to ask you about that was four months before, though, that it was in December of 76. Your grandmother had called Florida Highway Patrol for them to go look for him because he had not arrived yet. Basically the same situation that would end up happening four months later um, when he was found deceased. But she called and asked Florida Highway Patrol basically for a welfare check and told them, let me see if I've got that. Okay. So it says that Florida Highway Patrol had received a call from Mrs. Wolf um, in Seminole, Florida, requesting Florida Highway Patrol to check for her husband and said that he had a heart condition and he had not yet arrived at his destination. So this is in December of 76. Um, his truck was found parked at a rest area, um, but he wasn't in it. It was on the Manatee side of the Sunshine Skyway. So the, it was like a rest area close to when you were on the Manatee side, you're about to go over the um, bridge. And um, he was in a car parked next to his car with a woman. And um, they took the tag numbers, but that information is not fully fleshed out in this report. So there's no indication of who the woman was, if it was someone that Mr. Wolf knew, or if, like, it doesn't mention anything. I did send for Florida, to Florida Highway Patrol to try to see if I can get that record from 1976. I don't know if they'll have it. But I was wondering if, if you knew anything about that particular report. I don't know anything about it. And my grandma, she, we were in Tampa at the time, not in Seminole. Hmm. Well, it says Harry Wolf, who was in route, according to who what 
FHP was told, en route to Bradenton from Seminole. That that information was never given to your mother or grandmother? I, I don't know. I've n- I did never hear of that. I do have an, an aunt who was um, married to my mother's brother, but it was not my grandfather's child. Um, and she is still alive. She might know more about it or remember more about it, but I, I don't remember anything about that. Hmm. And I wonder if when they gave your mom the reports, they just didn't put that in there. Um, Because it's in the full, you know, I got what? uh, Well, it's only 174 pages that I got. Um, It's not by report standards. That's very small. My last one was like a thousand something. So, you know, that tells you they didn't have much. Um, But when we were there, the guy was a little bit, in my opinion, uncooperative. And he was looking at me like, well, why do you want to know? And I'm like, "Uh, well, he was my grandpa and I'm here to support my mom. Right. Um, and, And he was like, oh, I said, what happened to the evidence that you had taken from the truck? Because, you know, wow, DNA does so much now. Oh, that's way gone. And I said, well, what about the file? And he's like, oh, we had a fire, and yeah, that's gone too. So he basically told us that we had more information about the case and paperwork on it than he had. So basically this was a regular trip that he made often whenever they visited, and how often did they do that, once a year come down, or how did how often did they come and stay with family and then he take off for his trip? Well, they, um, I don't remember them really staying with us more than that one particular time or maybe a, one other time before that. Um, but I had, my mom had a brother who my grandmother would want to go see. So sometimes maybe they went to go see them necessarily and not us. In Florida also? Yes. Now they lived in, I think, Seminole. Okay. Yeah, somewhere over there. Okay, so that makes sense. And, you know, there were those two trips in four, you know, four months at it, one in December and one in April. So maybe in one of those times she they were visiting you and another time they were visiting um, the family in Seminole. Maybe, but I don't see him coming from Ohio. And I don't even remember what month this occurred. So April is what is the month that he was murdered. Right. And then December is the one where they, they the Florida Highway Patrol had come across his vehicle yeah, where he was. So, yeah, maybe they were visiting my aunt and uncle in Seminole four months prior. Okay. So if they were retired, they could have traveled however often, you know, I guess, yes. if, if they were driving and around. They, and they towed that little RV. And it was one of the ones that... Um, uh, you could hook up to the hitch of the truck and then just, you know, drop it off and let the, the RV stay there and still drive away. Okay. Do you know if he was would be the type of person that would pick up a hitchhiker? Um, that I'm not sure because that was kind of something popular to do. Back then, yeah. Yeah. I, now I would say absolutely not. But right. I, back then, I, I don't know. Hmm. And that was the reason why his, to me, was one I wanted to look at is in comparison to the other cases, because it was someone who hitched a ride that ended up being the perpetrator. And I thought, well, if this is a serial offender in the same date range, it could have been the same situation. Even if he had a bike, I thought, well, maybe he could, the guy could have said, could you give me a ride to the Albertsons? And he said, pop, put your bike, pop your bike in the, in the back, you know, or he didn't even have to have his bike in that scenario. He could have just asked for a ride. But, um... 
I don't know. It's hard to tell with the with the incident that happened four months prior, where he he maybe he knew a woman and that he was meeting. Is it it's a possible in his that what you know about him that it could have been he had a girlfriend or something that he was visiting. I I don't think so. I don't really know because that's not something that somebody at my age would have known at that time. Right. Back then, people were different. They were very hush hush, especially yeah. if you had any money. You yeah. Certainly tell anything to anybody. Right. You know, you don't talk about your finances and you don't talk about personal things. So everything was very secretive. The following exchange is a series of emails back and forth between Harry Wolf's daughter and Lieutenant Keith Keough of the Minnetee County Sheriff's Office. May 7th, 2002. Dear Elaine, I have completed the review of the file. Based on this review, I have compiled a number of things that need to be done. Unfortunately, the case file was limited, and it will mean that a great deal of time will be spent reformulating it. As I explained to you, this will be a time-consuming endeavor. I promise that every effort will be made to conclude this case positively. I am in the process of contacting those police officials that worked on the case originally. The crime scene technician, oddly enough, is now a detective here. I'll keep you updated. Keith Keough. May 8th, 2002. Mr. Keough, thank you for your update. I wonder why the file is so fragmented. Is there information missing? I'm still trying to locate the journal that I spoke to you about. However, this might take some time, as many items have been moved to a storage area. I'm doubtful that this journal will help as it was shown to the detective, and I believe if my memory serves me correctly, he dismissed it. Of course, I will continue trying to locate it. I understand the time element being a premium for you and appreciate all that you are doing. I can't deny that I'm hoping for a priority status on my father's file, but realistically, I know that you will try your best. Sincerely, Elaine. May 19th, 2002. Mr. Keough, I was wondering about the fingerprint. At the time, I was told that it was a partial, but good enough to match if they found a suspect. I hope this wasn't said to me in error. Do you have any information on this issue? Thank you, Elaine. May 30th, 2002. Dear Elaine, I am making progress in reconstructing the file. I spoke yesterday with Bud Johnson, who's the crime scene technician. His information was helpful. He also referred me to others that may have information. I've also requested a report from our fingerprint people on the prints lifted in this case. I've asked them to re-examine them in the hopes that one or more APHIS quality prints can be searched in the national database. Have you had any luck locating that journal? I'll keep you updated. Keith Keough. May 31st, 2002. Thank you, Mr. Keough, for keeping me informed. My mother is 92 years old, and she's trying to find that journal. She has misplaced it and is very upset trying to find it. She's got a bad habit of moving items from place to place and gets confused. I do remember showing this journal to Detective Haas. I am wondering if it contained anything of value to help your case. I'm most anxious about that fingerprint. Our new technology just amazes me in forensic sciences. Perhaps I'm watching too much TV and expect more than is possible. That brings me to suggest that perhaps the vehicle was vacuumed and the contents saved. There must be some clue somewhere. 
People just don't get shot three times and the perpetrator not leave something. I can offer my services in gathering information and or coming to your office and organizing materials if you'd like, whatever I can do to help you. Again, I want to thank you for your continued concern and courtesy. I just don't know how to convey to you my appreciation in this matter. Most sincerely, Elaine. May 31st, 2002 Dear Elaine, Please let your mother know not to worry about that journal for now. We have plenty to do without it, and it isn't worth getting her upset over. I spoke with our property and evidence supervisor today. She's getting all the information on the physical evidence. I will email you next week as I get information. June 7th, 2002 Dear Mr. Keogh, have you had any luck with that fingerprint? I have a good feeling about this. Thank you, Elaine. June 28, 2002 Mr. Keogh, haven't heard a word from you in a few weeks. How's everything going? Have you found anything new? Please keep me posted. Thank you, Elaine. June 28, 2002 Dear Elaine, I'm sorry I haven't written you lately. We've been very busy on other things, but the case is still on my desk. I'm still waiting for our fingerprint people to submit a report to me regarding their part in this. I'll keep you updated. Keith Keogh June 30th, 2002 Mr. Keogh, I'm wondering why it's taking so long to obtain information from in-house files. They haven't misplaced the evidence, have they? Thank you again for keeping in touch. Elaine July 8th, 2002 Have you heard from the fingerprint people yet? Wondering why in-house information transfer is so difficult. Please keep me posted. Thank you. Elaine July 9th, 2002 Dear Elaine, I still haven't heard from our fingerprint unit. However, I will speak with them today and let you know. I have to tell you that this case is very frustrating as far as a review goes. The copies you received of the file is the extent of that file. This case was investigated under a different administration and the filing system was a lot different back then. In order to review the case, I have to reconstruct it by speaking with those who were involved in it. I did speak with the crime scene technician, Bud Johnson, who informs me that to his knowledge, there were a few good prints taken from your father's truck. Some were identified as his, your dad, and one that was found on the window belonged to a deputy who was at the crime scene. From his memory, he remembers other prints that were not identified. I also learned from him that a superior on the case had either Pinellas County or another agency come in and do another inspection of the truck before it was released. Also, there was evidently an employee of the sheriff's office that was sent to Dayton, Ohio to conduct further follow-up on this case. I received this information from the newspaper clippings that I got from you, not in the report. I'm trying to locate that person to see if any relevant information was received. I have contacted Curtis Siver who was at the time of the murder a state attorney investigator, and he advised me that he has no reports regarding his involvement of the case. He did not recall anything significant regarding his involvement. As I told you in the beginning, I promised to review the information and follow any leads that are significant. Currently, the ICE unit is following up on at least six cold murder cases. The unit investigates cases on a priority basis which is to say, 
those with the highest solvability factors. I will keep you posted. Sincerely, Keith Keogh. July 9th, 2002. Dear Mr. Keogh, Your letter is not encouraging. With the lack of information, it's hard to imagine that the former administration was that inefficient. I remember a lot of communication between the detectives, myself and Captain Mayer, and they seemed interested in the case. I don't recall who went to Dayton, but Mr. Haas does. My personal contact with Mr. Haas, he was very supportive and somewhat critical of the administration he worked under. What can I do to help? I am so hoping that you don't become discouraged and move on to something or somewhere else. Will there ever be closure? Sincerely, Elaine. That is all the communications between the two that were included in the file. I do want to say that Lieutenant Keogh was sending memos to various departments to get all the information that he told her he was trying to get. The documentation from him contacting those departments is in the report. Within this portion of the report is a technical services report, which noted that photos were taken of the rear camper portion of the pickup, and a list of those items was included. This is one of the elements that I was most interested in but the photos were not included in my file. My question related to the Kingfish case would have been whether it appeared that a bike could have been put into the back of that camper based on the available space. I don't have any indication either way in that regard. I don't have the pictures to look at. I'll give you an idea of what was in the back of that camper truck, though. The list is long, and it includes the following at least 15 fishing rods, tackle boxes, a metal detector, tire tool, gallon jug of antifreeze, three extension cords, stop lights, an automatic stabilization control system, an automatic pancaker, foam cushions, two straw hats, one that was a man's and one that was a woman's, miscellaneous tools, an electric drill, a stepladder, miscellaneous pieces of wood, a stool, an air filter, some clothing, another magnetic truck antenna, a drain hose, boat cushions, three pillows, three coats, three tennis rackets, and a badminton racket, two sets of golf clubs, two golf bags, approximately 43 golf balls in a bag, assorted tees, caps, gloves, a push golf cart, a battery charger, two thermos bottles and a sandwich box, rubber worms, assorted paperwork, boat wax, a road atlas, a case of EverReady industrial batteries, some medications, a box of miscellaneous motor oils and car waxes, jumper cables, multiple boxes of hand and gardening tools and electrical supplies, a box with batteries, flash cubes, and playing cards, a spare tire and rim, four buckets, two of which were minnow and bait buckets, three and a half cartons of Pall Mall cigarettes, a floor jack, a styrofoam cooler, miscellaneous camping equipment, a fire extinguisher, and a box of personal paperwork. That's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff that indicates he could have been doing outdoor activities. I'm not sure whether a bike would have fit back there or not. In the instance, let's say, for example, if Mr. Wolf agreed to give a stranger a ride to the Albertsons parking lot. There were items found on the floor in the passenger side as well, and those might be important. Two bottles of his medications, a pair of brown golf shoes with spikes, 
a golf hat, a receipt for a construction loan dated March of 1977, a service invoice from Fort Myers Trailer Supplies, a bank envelope with blank checks and other bank paperwork, deposit slips and various receipts, a real estate brochure from Tampa, a box of fishing weights and swivels, a brown bag containing trash, a clear envelope containing various books on operations of a 1972 pickup truck, and miscellaneous car papers, a Zippo lighter, miscellaneous business cards, and an envelope containing miscellaneous road maps and camping information. A couple things I got out of that. The golf shoes and hat on the floor seemed to support the notion that he may have been golfing that day. But the box of fishing weights and swivels made me also wonder if perhaps he had stopped at one of the many roadside docks, parks, or boat launches in the area to fish a little while at any time on his trip. It should be noted that the Kingfish boat ramp was one of many places in the area where people often fished right off the dock, as well as the bridge to the island itself, on which, if you'll recall, he had been found stopped four months earlier. There's another review of this report dated 2010, and among the findings it says, Indications are three rounds recovered from the decedent were fragmented to the point of being untraceable, which would seem to rule out the possibility of ballistics being any help in this case. This report also says that at that time there was no physical evidence or witness or investigative leads to follow up on. Now, the physical evidence in this case was reviewed. It still exists as far as I know, and each item was renumbered in 2012 when it was again looked over for cold case review, and there was a fair amount of that evidence. At the very end of the report that I was furnished was a letter from the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia. In part, that letter stated, quote, In May of 2013, the FBI upgraded its automated fingerprint database to Next Generation Identification, or NGI. Based on improved search algorithm accuracy and increased database functionality associated with NGI, the LPU launched an initiative to search all latent prints affiliated with capital cases previously worked by the FBI's LPU prior to any automated fingerprint database. As a result of this initiative, an examiner has identified one or more previously unidentified latent prints detected on evidence in the following cases in your jurisdiction. Victim name, Harry Wolf. The letter went on to give two names, one male and one female, whose prints were detected, one on an owner's manual in the vehicle, the other on an intercom booklet. The report is no more specific than that meaning an owner's manual for what, the vehicle or an item found within the vehicle or just a random owner's manual. And the intercom booklet, I'm not even sure what that intercom refers to. But the letter noted that the information was being provided as an investigative lead and said if they would like a formal comparison and lab report concerning that fingerprint evidence, they could call the forensic examiner in the latent print unit. A letter attached to this FBI memo from the cold case review team to the Manatee County Sheriff's Captain, said that the fingerprint of the male was related to an Alfonso Zamora who had an extensive criminal history in the state of Texas, but that they were unable to place him in the state of Florida. The second print associated to the female said that the FBI had her 
red flagged as possibly former law enforcement. I guess it should be noted that that owner's manual, if it related to the vehicle, which was a 1972 truck in 1977, could have been touched by any number of people when the truck was at the factory or wherever it is that they produce those books before they're put in the vehicles at the factory. We don't have any indication that anything, for example, in the glove box where an owner's manual for the vehicle might be or anywhere else was touched with bloody fingerprints, certainly. So I'm not even sure what these fingerprints can tell us. This letter, though, also mentioned the victim's front pant pocket having been turned out and that the detective had spoken with the DNA lab about the possibility of using the MVAC technology. The lab was supposed to supply them with information related to that, case studies, and pricing, quote, if you decide to use it. There was no further indication in this report as to whether that testing or any DNA testing was ever done in this case. Given that police seemed to feel the shooting occurred inside the cab of that truck while the perpetrator was sitting next to the victim, I think it's possible that there were other areas on the victim's clothing that could have been touched by the perpetrator. Picture the scene for a minute. If you're sitting in the passenger seat and you're shooting someone in the driver's seat and we know that person fell over to the right toward the passenger side, perhaps they fell literally onto the perpetrator. I can envision a scenario where the victim's right shoulder and upper body could have been touched by the perpetrator to push him off or away from him as he got out of the vehicle. Then there are those vehicle keys, which we know the perpetrator most certainly touched because they were found discarded outside the vehicle. He may have used those keys to lock both doors before he tossed them on the ground and left the scene, given that there was blood on the outside of both doors around the handle. The perpetrator, with bloodied hands, seemingly would not have had any other reason to go around to the driver's side to touch that door, and it's unlikely that Mr. Wolf himself tossed those keys outside the vehicle. Why the perpetrator grabbed the keys in the first place is an interesting question, when he could have just pushed down the button locks before exiting the cab. Perhaps it was an effort to keep Mr. Wolf from being able to turn on the ignition, if he knew that Mr. Wolf was not quite dead yet. Or maybe he thought it would turn off that dome light that the police found broken. And speaking of keys, there's also a set of keys in play that was discarded outside the Michelson's home, the key on the elephant keychain. In both of these cases, in Harry Wolf's and the Michelson's, there is a set of keys that we can reasonably surmise were last touched by the perpetrators of their respective crimes. It might be a long shot, but if it were me, I'd swab both of those keys for DNA and see if you can come up with a sample that's not for Mr. Wolf on his keys or the Michelsons on theirs. Guys, I actually typed that up without a hint of irony, and I even felt a glimmer of hope for all of about, oh, I don't know, a minute and 52 seconds. And then I remembered those pictures in the newspaper related to the Michelsons case anyway. There's one with a line beneath it that reads, Relative and police discuss mystery keys. The image is a close-up of Mrs. Michelson's brother George and Lieutenant Rocky Brown staring at the set of keys in the palm of Chief McCammon's hand. His bare hand. He's not wearing gloves. The officer who found the keys on the ground and picked them up probably didn't wear gloves either. What I've learned from researching dozens of cases from the 60s, 70s, and early 80s 
is that gloves really weren't a thing back then. Not used at every crime scene anyway. Probably because neither was DNA. So unless you yourself were about to touch something juicy and wanted to protect your own hands, you probably weren't wearing gloves. The idea of wearing them to protect evidence just was not a thing in 1974. Hell, in one of the first cases that I covered, which took place in Michigan in the early 80s, the EMTs weren't even wearing gloves. And that's right from his mouth. He told me he spent some time at that crime scene scrubbing blood off his hands with alcohol wipes. Now, technically, I guess you still could get DNA off those keys and that key ring. If you had DNA standards from anyone in law enforcement who might have come in contact with them to rule them out, most of whom are likely deceased by now. And still, that's if those keys were kept and properly stored. It's so frustrating though, right? You can picture it in your head, the perpetrator in each one of those crimes, holding those keys between their thumb and forefinger or in their hand. Keys that could technically be swapped for DNA. But I don't know if it's a viable option. The fact is there are a whole lot of ifs associated with cold cases, many of which turn into what ifs under the glaring lens that hindsight provides. The what-ifs in the case of Harry Wolf might have included a chat with other people at that alleged golf course where Mr. Wolf's game allegedly occurred to at least cement that part of the story into fact. We don't have that. We have no indication that they ever interviewed anyone where this alleged golf game took place. Another what-if involves the woman with Mr. Wolf at that rest stop four months earlier, and whether that was someone he might have been visiting again on the trip he made four months later. The thing is, I have no idea whether by the time 1977 rolled around, the investigators at Mr. Wolf's crime scene would have been wearing gloves, so when they fetched that set of keys from the grass, a DNA swab might be more feasible today in this case. Again, it's all very what-iffy. I do know this. Our heroes who work every day in crime labs when faced with a lack of corroborating facts related to the collection, storage, and chain of custody around evidence, tend to get a bit squeamish about what the results of that evidence can factually provide. Not to mention judges and juries. There is literally no suspect in the case of Harry Wolf, and there never has been. Could it be related to the Kingfish Boat Ramp murders? Well, with the facts that I have right now, I can't rule it out, that's for sure. Maybe they could compare any unknown latent prints from Mr. Wolf's case with any unknown latent prints they have in the Kingfish case. Ballistics is also something that could be checked, although there seems to be question about whether that would be viable with the evidence from Harry Wolf's case. So, I guess we should sum up how these cases are similar. Proximity, of course, is one similarity. Both vehicles in each case had the capacity to store a bike, should the same ruse have been used, and someone with nefarious intent had hitched a ride with Mr. Wolf that night. There are at least some signs that he could have been fishing, perhaps at a boat ramp or fishing area or rest area, on the day he was killed, that tackle box that was found on the front floorboard and all of those fishing rods in the back. Mr. Wolf's vehicle was parked into a spot just shy of an exit, which could indicate that he was dropping someone off, someone maybe that he had given a ride, someone who could have left their car in the parking lot of the Albertson store 
just like the perpetrator in the Kingfish boat ramp homicides, left a vehicle in a grocery store parking lot before biking to the first scene of that crime. The victims in both the Kingfish cases and the case of Harry Wolf were shot in the heads while inside vehicles. And in both cases, the victims were shot with what appears to be a 22 caliber handgun. Now I know this is a stretch. I'm sure you're saying that to yourself. Jenny, this is a stretch. And yes, hell, I'm saying that to myself, I agree. I would be shocked if these two cases were related. But I think it bears looking into all the same because still to this day, we have no suspects or motive in either case. When I spoke with Captain Bork with the Longboat Key Police Department about the Michelson case, I also mentioned to him the case of Harry Wolf. He seemed interested enough to look into it, and he also works on current open homicide cases in Manatee County. So I really hope that I gave him enough to pique his curiosity, to make him maybe go one step further to compare some evidence in both cases, if that's feasible. Because that is all I can really do on my end. Well, that and take this case to you guys, the listeners. So if you have any information about the murder of Harry Wolf in Bradenton, Florida on April 21st, 1977, please contact the Manatee County Crime Stoppers at 866-634-TIPS. That's 866-634-TIPS. They also have a mobile app that you can download at p3tips.com. And as always, you can reach out to me with any questions, concerns, or tips at deckerjenny at gmail.com. That's D-E-C-K-E-R-J-E-N-I at gmail.com. Next up, yet another case from Manatee County, Florida. Please stay tuned. Thank you.